the morning. If you'd open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, where our lesson will be taken from this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Before we begin, let's bow before our Lord together. Our Father, we come before you this morning a, a thankful people. How thankful we are for your mercy and grace you've purposed for your people in our Lord Jesus Christ. How I thank you for revealing your Son to us and in us. And in so many here, Father, you've been so merciful, so gracious. We're thankful. Father, we're thankful for your keeping grace, your preserving grace. We thank you that you continue to feed and instruct your people through the preaching of your word. You've given us a place where we can meet together and worship and and peace and unity. And Father, we're thankful. We are a thankful people. Father, we're also a, a poor and a needy people in this flesh. And how we pray that this morning you'd open up your storehouses of grace and you'd reveal to us one more time the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would enable me to rightly divide the word of truth, to preach the truth, to preach Christ with a heart of love for thee and love for your people, a compassion for sinners. Father, I pray you'd give us all a hearing ear and a believing heart. Enable us to feast upon the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Find our hope and rest and peace in him. What we pray for ourselves, Father, we pray for our children's classes and your gospel wherever it's preached this morning. Father, bless your word. Cause it to run well, to show forth your glory in this dark day in which we live. Comfort in the hearts of your people and save and instruct according to thy will. Father, we thank you for the many blessings of this life, how richly you've blessed us, and we thank you. And we dare not, Father, sin against thee in forgetting to pray for your people that you've brought into the valley of trouble and trial. Father, we pray that you'd deliver, that you'd heal, that you'd comfort, and that above all, Father, you'd give your people grace that's sufficient for the trial that you've sent sent their way. Comfort their hearts with your presence, we pray. All these things we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake and his glory, we pray. Amen. I've titled our lesson this morning, Who First Trusted in Christ. I took my title from verse 12 of Ephesians 1, which says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And when Lord first and finally, I would say finally, showed me the the real meaning of this verse, it, it opened up the gospel for me in a, in a whole way that, that I had not seen before. And I want us to look at these verses this morning and see what a blessing it is for God's people that the first person who ever trusted in Christ the Savior is God the Father. The first one to trust in Christ, it, it wasn't the Jews. It wasn't Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He's not talking about the apostles here. The first person to trust in Christ was God the Father. And I'll tell you how that came to be. Before God created anything, Almighty God entered into a covenant of grace. Now the covenant of grace, it's a covenant. It's a promise. 
between God and God. It's a contract. It's a promise that God made to God. Now God knew he entered into this covenant because he knew after he created man in the garden, he knew that Adam would fall and he'd plunge his whole race into sin and death. But in his mercy and his love for sinners, God the Father elected a people that he would save out of Adam's fallen race. They wouldn't do anything ever. He knew this. They'd never do anything to deserve such mercy, such grace, and such love. Matter of fact, just the opposite. Everything they would do deserves God's wrath. But the Father chose to save them anyway. He chose to have mercy on some. The Father chose those people, and he gave those people to his Son to save. He gave his Son the responsibility to save those people. And the Father promised his Son, Son, I'll accept these people. If you come in the flesh and you obey the law for them, Adam's going to make them sinners by his disobedience, but by your obedience, you, you can make them righteous. I'll accept them if you make them righteous by your obedience. And son, something's got to be done with their sin. You can make them righteous by your obedience, but something's got to be done with their sin. You're going to have to be made sin. For this people, you're going to have to take all of the sin of all of these people that I've chosen to save. You're going to have to take that sin into your body upon the tree. And you're going to have to put it away by your blood, by your sacrifice for their sin. Now, that was the father's promise to the son. And the son believed his father. He believed his father would do what he said he'd do. And the son said, Father, I'll do everything that you just said. I'll do everything that you require in order to save these people that you've given me from their sin. And the father trusted the son to do what he said he'd do. That's how the father first trusted in the son. And you know, we have a beautiful picture of that in the Old Testament. We won't go back and, and read it. It covers a lot of verses. But you were, you know the story of, of Joseph. and His brother sold him into slavery in, in Egypt, and he became the, the king, the second in command of all of Egypt. And remember those sons went down, the Jacob's sons went down there to, to buy bread. They didn't know they were dealing with Joseph. They thought they were just dealing you know, with this king. And The king kept their oldest brother, Simeon. He kept him kind of there as a, as a prisoner and said, I'll release him, and you come back to buy bread again, you bring your younger brother. You bring Benjamin Benjamin up here. If you do, I'll sell you food. If you don't bring Benjamin with you, I won't sell you food. And I won't release Simeon, your brother, from jail. Well, they ran out of food. It was time for them to go back down to Egypt again a second time and get bread. And Jacob said, I'm through sending my sons with you boys. Every time I send one of my sons away with you, it seems like you come back missing one. Joseph is not. Simeon's not. I'm not sending Benjamin with you. And if he hadn't sent Benjamin down there to Egypt, they starved to death. And Judah came to his father and said, Father, send the lad with me. I'll be surety for him. And Jacob trusted Judah to be surety for Benjamin. And he sent him down there to Egypt. Now, it's no mistake. It's, it's not a, just a coincidence which one of these sons went to his father and said, Father, send him with me. I'll be surety for him. It's Judah. You who came from the tribe of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ, the surety for his people. Jacob trusted Judah. And look how that family was blessed because Jacob trusted Judah to be the surety for Benjamin. 
they went down there to Egypt and they found out their brother's not dead. He's the king. The whole family was restored to Joseph. They were, went down there to Egypt and boy, they, they had the best of the land. They were taken care of so well in Egypt. And as long as there lived a Pharaoh, who at some point during his lifetime knew Joseph, all was well with Jacob's family, wasn't it? For Joseph's sake. All that happened because, because Jacob trusted Judah to be the surety for Benjamin. And that story is given to us as a picture. This is, these are the blessings. You think of all the blessings that have come to God's elect because the father trusted the son to do what he promised to do in the covenant of grace. The father trusted his son to redeem those people, and he did. And now, in Adam, we're cut off from God, aren't we? Thrust out of the garden, and Christ were restored back to the father. The father trusted his son to undo everything that Adam had done to him by their sin. And think of all the blessings. Every spiritual blessing we have has come from that covenant of grace where the father first trusted the son do what he promised to do to redeem his people from their sin. See, the father did not trust his son in vain. The son did what he promised to do. And in our text this morning, I see four blessed results of Christ keeping his promise to his father. The first one is this. Because the father trusted the son, all of God's elect are going to appear with Christ in glory. Look at verse 10, Ephesians 1. That in dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now the dispensation of the fullness of times means this, that when God has done in time everything that he purposed to do before creation, then God's going to bring to pass his main purpose. He's going to bring to pass what he is intended to do all along. God's going to gather all of his people together in glory. All of those people, they're not going to be like Adam anymore. They're all going to be made just like Christ. And they're all going to be brought together to worship him face to face eternally. And they're going to be able to do it perfectly. They have no more sin. No more sin nature. They're going to be there worshiping Christ face to face Perfectly. Can you imagine not having your mind wander when the gospel's being preached? Can you imagine what the, that's what it would be like? And everyone there will have one purpose. Everyone there in glory around the throne of God will have one purpose. Their purpose is to glorify the Son, to glorify and praise their Redeemer. That's the reason. God did every, has done everything that he's done from, from creation to whenever the dispensation of the fullness of times is, whenever the, the end of God's purpose to wrap this thing up is. Everything God has done in that time has been done for this purpose, that we would praise his son. That's what he says in verse 6. God's done all this to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That's the reason God's done everything he's done is to glorify his son. And God brings all of his people together in glory. They're going to see the glory of Christ clearly. No more through a glass darkly. We're going to see 
clearly. And it's not just going to be our responsibility to praise the Savior. It's going to be our joy. It's going to be our joy to sing the praises of our Redeemer. When God has done everything that he purposed to do, he's going to sum this whole thing up. John Gill says that's the, that's the, the meanings of the, of the words here in this verse 10. God's going to sum it all up. And this is the sum of it all. It's the glory of Christ. You know, everything that's been done, everything that was done in the Old Testament, to start there, in the Old Testament, everything that was done in the Old Testament was done for the glory of Christ. God created Adam in the garden, and God allowed him to fall. Could God have stopped Adam from falling? Sure he could have, but he didn't. You know why? For the glory of Christ. If we hadn't fallen in Adam, we'd never see the glory being redeemed in Christ. That's why God allowed that to happen. Some years passed and God called Moses up to Mount Sinai and gave him the law. You know why God gave the law to Moses? It wasn't so we could earn a righteousness by keeping it. God didn't give the law so we'd have a a playbook, you know, of of how, how to live your life. Well, do this and don't do this. This is a good way to live your life. That's not why God gave the law. The law was given to show us we can't obey it. We don't have the ability to obey it. We cannot possibly make ourselves righteous by obeying the law. We can't possibly please God by obeying the law. The law was given for the glory of Christ. The law was given so we'd see how desperately we need Christ to come and obey the law for us. We need Christ to come and shed his blood to put our sin away. All this sin we've committed by by breaking God's law. We need Christ to come in the flesh and obey the law for us. In our, as, in our place, as our representative. And I don't know how much time you spend thinking about this now. But if you think about it now, it amazes us, doesn't it? That a man in the flesh could obey God's law for his whole life. We can't do it for a split second. He did it for his whole life long. That amazes us now to think of the obedience of our Savior, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, in glory, we're going to be slack-jawed at this thing. Christ came and obeyed the law for us. And the, the wonder of it all is, he could obey it. And who did he obey it for? Sinners like you and me. We're going to be slack-jawed at that, just praising him for that. Then God gave all the, the ceremonies, the, the sacrifices, and the, the ceremonies of the, the, the high priest would go through all these, these ceremonies and, and feast days and days that, that they observed. All those things were given to us. This is not a way you please God. This is not the religion, the, the religious ceremonies that God accepts. God's not pleased with the outward ceremonies of religion. God looks on the heart. Why were all those ceremonies given then? If God's not pleased by what we do outwardly, observing all these ceremonies, going through all this religious, you know, show, if God's not pleased with that, why did he ever give it? The purpose of it so that we'd see the glory of Christ. We love now, now that we understand we have the New Testament, we understand that the Old Testament is given to us as pictures of Christ. We love to see those things, don't we? Somebody calls me and asks me to go some, someplace and preach. 
99 times out of 100, the first thing I think of is what Old Testament type could I preach from? Just I just love them. You do too. We love those Old Testament types. Can you imagine how much more thrilled we're going to be in glory? when We see Christ as the fulfillment of all of those ceremonies. Can you imagine? Oh, it's going to be. It'd just be rapture for our souls. Everything God did in the New Testament. Christ coming into flesh. Christ being born of a virgin. He is born of a virgin. So he did not partake in Adam's sinful nature. So that by his perfect sinless blood. He could put away the sin of his people. What a, what a mystery. What a glorious thing. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But the incarnation of Christ is not... The fact that the virgin gave birth to a baby in a manger and everybody has to feel sorry this beautiful baby's been laid in a horse trough as a, a cradle, as a, a bassinet, you know. The glory of this is, is God the, Father, the eternal Father appeared in the flesh that he might put away the sin of his people. And the whole rest of the New Testament is preached to tell us what, what that man accomplished. What that God-man accomplished in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And that he's coming again to get those people that he redeemed and bring them to himself. And believe it or not, nothing's changed. Everything God is doing in providence now. You know, God's providence is simply this. Everything that's happening in time, God purposed for it to happen. Just exactly like it's happened. Whether it's something that's pleasant to us or something that's unpleasant to us, God's purpose for it to happen exactly the way that it's happening. Now, we don't see that now. We don't see this now. But it's all good. It's all good. We don't understand now. How, how is it that, that my pain and my sorrow and my heartache, how is it possible that can work out for good. Well, you think of this. What pain, what sorrow, what heartache have you gone through that can possibly compare to the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of Christ our Savior? The Father brought good out of that, didn't he? Didn't he? He brought our salvation out of it. Well, we know and we believe then God can bring good out of my sorrow and my pain and my suffering too. I know that. I know that. It's hard to see, isn't it? It's just, I, I don't see it. I don't see the good. That's, but just because I don't see the good that's coming out of it doesn't mean it's not there now. God's bringing good out of it. We don't see it now, do we? Not usually. But we'll see it then. We'll see it in glory. And I'm telling you, we're going to be awestruck to see how perfectly our God did everything. Everything he, that happened in his creation all worked together for good. And we're going to be amazed to see it. And you know why all that happened? Because the Father first trusted the Son to redeem his people like he promised he would. All right, number two. Since the Son did everything He promised the Father He would do, God's elect are going to receive an inheritance. 
Verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of, thing, uh, purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now this is the message of scripture. Salvation is by God's grace alone. Alone, without any of our works adding to it, without any of our works being done to help God out. Salvation is by grace, and it's given to God's people freely, freely, as an inheritance. I looked this word inheritance up, and I saw this. I don't think I'd really ever noticed this before. But more times than I could count in the Old Testament, when the Lord's speaking to Israel, and he talks about the land that they're living in. This is after they've left Egypt, and they've come to the land that God promised to give them. When he talked to Israel about that land in which they live, the land he promised Abraham, he said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Every time the Lord talked about that land, you know what he called it? The land of your inheritance. The land that you inherited. He never called it the land you took by your military might, did he? Now, Joshua led an army across that place. He went to battle, didn't he? Oh, they went to battle. But he never called it the land you took by your military might. He said, it's the land of your inheritance. And we know this now, that promised land, that land that God brought Israel to. That's a picture of heaven. For all of God's people, all of God's spiritual Israel are going to live. And it will not be the land. It will not be the place. It will not be the mansion. It will not be the house. It will not be that we earn by our works. It'll be our inheritance. And that's true of every blessing that God ever gives his people. Physical blessings? What do you have God didn't give you? Huh? What do you have God didn't give you? And some, some smart aleck is going to say, well, no, no, I worked to get that. I worked. Who gave you the ability to go work? Huh? How come you're not so sick you can't work? Who gave, who gave you the job? Have you ever tried to find a job? That's one of the hardest things there is in this world. Find a job. Find somebody hire you and give you a job. Who gave that job? Huh? Come on. Everything we have, God's given us. And boy, that's especially true spiritually, isn't it? God's people have inherited every blessing that God has for sin. We inherited it. We didn't earn it. We inherited it. And you know what inheritance is. An inheritance is something somebody else earned. Somebody else worked. Somebody else saved it up. Somebody else gathered it together. And they give it to their descendants freely. That's every spiritual blessing God's people have. Somebody else earned it. The Lord Jesus Christ earned it. He saved it up in the storehouses of his grace. He saved it up in the, the, the vast measureless storehouses of his mercy. And he gives it all to his people. He earned it by his obedience and by his sacrifice. And he gives it to his people freely. And it's an inheritance. Because the testators died. The testator died in our place. And he's given these blessings to his people freely as an inheritance. See, in the covenant of grace, the son promised the father. Father, I'm going to earn all these blessings. I'm going to earn them by my obedience. I'm going to earn them by my, my precious blood that I shed as a sacrifice for my people. I'm going to earn them. 
I'm going to suffer and die for my people. And the father said, when you die, I'll give all those things to your people freely. That's what inheritance is. And you know, in this covenant of grace, both father and son, they both held up their end of the bargain, haven't they? God's elect inherit eternal life. We don't earn it, we inherit it. Because Christ died the death that we deserve. God's elect inherit righteousness. We don't earn that. Christ earned it for us. He was made sin for us. That what? We might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's given to us freely as an inheritance. God's elect inherit redemption. We inherit it because Christ earned it. He earned it through the blood of His sacrifice. He bought it with His blood and He gives it to His people freely as an inheritance. You could, I could spend the rest of the day thinking, just thinking up things we've inherited, the blessings God's given His people. But let's sum it up the way Scripture sums it up. God's elect inherit everything that Christ inherits from His Father. He's the only Son, so He inherits it all. And God's people inherit all those blessings too. All of them. They inherit everything, every blessing God has for a sinner because we're joint heirs with Christ. Now they're ours now. All these things are ours now. Eternal life, righteousness, holiness, they're all ours now. But we have them by faith, don't we? We have them by faith. We don't have them in actual possession. We're still in these bodies of death. But what an inheritance God's people had to look forward to in glory. And when we have them all in possession, you know what we're gonna, you know what we're gonna sing? We're gonna sing the praises of Christ our Savior. He earned them, and we have them all because the Father first trusted the Son to earn them. And he did. He came and did it. Then thirdly, God's elect are given faith in Christ now. Verse 13. In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that you believed, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now the Father, he's the one that first trusted his Son, isn't he? And the Father's completely satisfied. His faith was not in vain. Christ the Son did everything he promised that he would do. The Son established righteousness and sanctification for his people. That pleased his Father's holiness. The blood of Christ blotted out the sin that made God angry. The blood of Christ satisfied God's justice. See, the father's faith in his son was well-founded. The son didn't let him down. What a blessing. The Holy Spirit gives faith in Christ to God's elect. We trust Christ the same way the father did. We trust Christ to do everything that he promised he would do. We trust, and here's how, how, how you can tell. You trust Christ do everything he promised he would do. You don't feel compelled to add anything to it. Because Christ did it all, just like he promised he would do. And the Spirit enables God's people to hear the gospel of Christ and to believe him, to trust our souls to him. See, here's the reason that we preach the gospel. The gospel is preached to tell us who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what it is that he accomplished for his people. 
And when we hear that gospel preached, who Christ is, and what he did, why he did it, and where he is now, that he did what he promised he would do. When God's elect hear that Christ, we believe on him. We believe on him. We cast our soul on him. I'm telling you, since Christ came and did what he promised that he would do, now we have someone to trust. We wouldn't have anybody to trust if Christ didn't come, would we? But now we do. He's came and, and did what he promised his father he would do, and we have somebody we can trust. And God the Holy Spirit blesses his people with faith in Christ now, right now in this life. Isn't it a blessing that you just don't go through this veil of tears here below without ever knowing anything about Christ and just wake up one day in glory? I mean, I reckon God could have done it that way if if he'd have wanted to, but he didn't. That's not the way he, he chose to do it. Isn't it a blessing to go through this veil of tears trusting Christ now? I want to say this right. But if our faith in Christ, our so-called faith in Christ, is just something we pull out on Sunday and Wednesday, and something we talk about on Sunday and Wednesday, I'm afraid it's not saving faith. Saving faith is helpful in our everyday life. How helpful is it in your everyday life? I just would imagine your life's not like mine. It's not smooth sailing very often, is it? Not, not very often. How helpful is it then in those days, those stormy days, those dark days, those difficult days, to be able to trust Christ? Oh, it's, it's helpful to our everyday lives, isn't it? And I know it's not perfect faith. It's not perfect trust. But it sure is a blessing, isn't it? (laughs) It sure is a blessing. And we have that because Christ came. Because he did what he told his father that he would do. Here's the last thing. Because Because Christ did what he promised his father he would do. The father is glorified. Verse 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory. The praise of the father who first trusted in Christ. Look back at John 17. John 17, verse 1. The Father is glorified because of what the Lord Jesus did as a man. John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. The work of Christ enabled God to be just and holy and still save his people from their sin. That's God's glory. The life and the death of Christ glorified every attribute of of the Father. We never would have seen that if Christ didn't do what he promised his Father he would do. The Father's wisdom is glorified in the sacrifice of Christ, isn't it? It's the Father's wisdom to find, to provide a ransom for the souls of sinners. We never would have seen a way to injustice, ransom our souls if we hadn't seen Christ die. The death of Christ glorifies the wisdom of God. 
It glorifies the grace of God. It glorifies the justice of God. Only in the death of Christ can we see justice and grace exalted at the same time. In the death of Christ. And the Son's glorified too. The Son's glorified because He accomplishes perfect work of redemption. And one day, we're going to see. I know we know it now, but boy, we're going to see it. We're going to experience it. The death of Christ is not in vain. The work of Christ is not in vain. The promise of Christ to his Father was not in vain. One day, every last person for whom Christ died is going to be glorified. We're going to be in a perfect body, in a perfect place. And this is what glory will be for God's people. It's going to be, this is glory, that we be made just like Christ and we're able to worship our God perfectly. And all that's going to happen. That's going to be our experience. That's going to be the end of the story of every believer because of what happened before creation. The Father first trusted the Son and the Son didn't let him down. All right. May the Lord bless you.